This evening, we will be uh, turning again to the Beatitudes, to Matthew 5, verse 6, which in your pew Bibles can be found on the bottom of page 809. People have asked me over these past few weeks what Beatitude I would be uh, preaching my first sermon on, and I would tell them, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And a few people said, wow, that's the best one. And so I would like to preface my sermon with an apology. You have arrived at what is apparently the best beatitude, and you have to listen to your intern give his first sermon in front of a church. I am sorry. I didn't make the schedule. I just work here. So in light of this, uh, we have even more reason to ask for God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word this evening. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you say that you know the path of the righteous. Once more, you say that you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So God, for the sake of your holy name, please lead us in this time and open up our eyes and our hearts to your word that we might better know what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness and knowing May we walk in loving obedience in the footsteps of your Son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew 5, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This evening we have come to the fourth beatitude, as we have heard over the last weeks from Pastor Jason and Nick and Ben, these beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is directed to Jesus' followers. The text itself draws this distinction between the crowds and Jesus' disciples. In verse 1, Matthew writes of Jesus that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And then verse 2 says that he opened his mouth and taught them, that is, his disciples. And so this is the textual reason why we have been saying that these Beatitudes and the sermon is not addressed to people in general, but to his people, his church, those who identify as followers of Christ. So, as followers of Christ, let me ask you, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I know I'm going to spend this sermon showing you what righteousness is and explaining what hungering and thirsting means, but at the outset, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or just to simplify the question a little, do you want to be righteous? If not, what do you want to be? Uh, this week during a, a leadership meeting, uh, the icebreaker question for us was, what would you be if you were not doing what you are currently doing? Sort of a, what was, what's your dream job uh, question? And uh, one of the younger elders here in this church said that if he wasn't doing, working his current job, then he would be what he wanted to be when he was a kid, which was a baseball player 
and a grandpa. That's, that's what he wanted to be as a kid. So, so what do you want to be? I want to be rich, or I want to be famous. I want to be married, I want to be a parent. I want to be loved, I want to be funny. I want to be smart. Can you hear yourself saying, I want to be righteous. I want to be holy. Well, this beatitude says that as Christ's people, our defi- one, of, one of our defining characteristics is that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. As Christians, we should desire to be more righteous. And that is why we are looking at this verse tonight. So for my outline, I am just rearranging the words of this, of this verse. Obviously, in order to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we need to know what righteousness is. So first, we will be looking at defining righteousness broadly, and then we'll look at what Jesus means and what he doesn't mean by righteousness in, in this text. And then second, we will talk about what hungering and thirsting looks like. And then I will conclude with brief reflections on the satisfaction promised in this verse. So, two points and a conclusion. So, first off, what is righteousness? I'm sure we can all think of words that we associate with righteousness, words like morality and virtue and goodness. A righteous person is someone who does right. The word right is right there in the word. When it comes to the biblical concept of of righteousness, I think that the authors of the New Bible Dictionary uh, offer a helpful and a simple definition. They say that righteousness is conformity to the law, mind, and will of God. And uh, this this definition highlights uh, two helpful aspects about righteousness that I want to point out. One, righteousness requires more than just outward actions. It's very easy for us to think about righteousness as good actions. You're righteous if you do good things and you don't do bad things. But this definition doesn't just say that righteousness is conformity to the law of God. It says that righteousness is conformity to the law, the mind, and the will of God. Our actions must conform to the do's and the do-nots of the law. But also for us to be righteous, we, we must have our minds conform to God's minds and our hearts conform to His hearts. Our very desires must be conformed to God's desires. So righteousness is not less than good deeds, but it must be more than good deeds. Your whole being must be correctly oriented from the inside out. Imagine I'm taking a walk one day and I find an old lady who, as she was backing out of her driveway, her car got stuck in the snow. So I start helping her to push her car out of the snow and someone drives past and they ask me what I'm doing. I said, oh, I'm just helping, just helping this lady get her car out of the snow, just being a good boy scout. And she drives away and she thinks there, there's, there really are still decent people in this world. Yeah. And then, so I continue to help this lady and I get her car out of the, 
out of the snow, and she drives off, and once she's out of sight, I break into her house and I steal all her stuff. I looked pretty good on the outside. I impressed everyone that needed impressing, but my heart and my mind were set on getting praise from other people and satisfying myself with her stuff. And, and eventually my, my actions even reflected that. And so righteousness clearly requires more than just good actions that people can see. So number one, righteousness requires more than outward actions. And number two, righteousness necessitates a personal relationship with God. You need a personal relationship with God to be righteous. Again, our definition says righteousness is conformity to the law, the mind, and the will of God. The word conformity, it, Im it implies closeness. Imagine for Valentine's Day that you want to uh, make your own homemade candy. And so you, uh, you maybe you get a silicone mold, and the silicone mold has, has little heart shapes in it, and it has cute designs and little words on each one. And so the whole point of having this mold is so that the chocolate that you pour in conforms to the details in the mold. That's what it, what it means to conform. It literally means to be shaped with something. And that requires closeness between the mold and the thing that needs to be molded. You can't just pour a bunch of melted chocolate in a puddle on your table and expect it to harden and the shape of a heart that says, be mine, Valentine. And you can't expect to conform to God's law, mind, and heart without being molded by God through a, a similar closeness to him, through, through a relationship with him. In the Old Testament, when God calls his people to be holy, he does not say, be holy like me, and then I will be your God. No, instead he says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Right there we see that God is our standard for righteousness, for holiness, and our relationship with him as our God is our motivation for righteousness and holiness. We can only be righteous if we have a living relationship with him. So with those two things in mind, that, that righteousness is more than uh, outward actions and righteousness requires a personal relationship with God, I want to look at this beatitude and discuss what Jesus means by righteousness. Well, first off, actually, I want to discuss what Jesus does not mean. I think sometimes, especially in Reformed circles, we can read any righteous any reference to righteousness in the Bible through, through a lens of, of imputed righteousness. And let me explain what I mean by that. In the book of Romans, Paul is very concerned without, with how a human being can be declared righteous before God. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul proves that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, are, are unrighteous and condemned by their sin. And those who have never read the moral law as it has been revealed to the Jews still know what is right and wrong because 
the law of God has been written on their heart, and their consciences, though distorted by sin, do prove this. But, Paul says, if the Jews want to wave their moral superiority in the Gentiles' faces, he points out that having the law in the end just makes you all the more guilty because when you break the law, you break the law with fuller knowledge of what you have done. So Paul says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then what he does is he strings together a whole bunch of basically proof texts from the Old Testament to prove his point. And the first thing he says is, none is righteous, no, not one. This is true about every single person here tonight who does not have their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. You are not righteous, you do not understand, you do not do good, it says. And you cannot fix your relationship with God through works. Paul says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He says that by by trying to keep the law perfectly, all you do is discover that you can't keep the law perfectly. You do sin. You are not righteous in God's sight on your own. No one is righteous. And this is, of course, a very important truth. But sometimes we take this truth and we misapply it. No one is righteous. Therefore, as Christians, we are not righteous. We are still only the miserable sinners that we were before we first believed in Jesus. Well, that just isn't true. It goes against what Paul is about to say, and it goes against what Paul has already said. Paul says right in chapter 1 of Romans that the righteous shall live by faith. And that is what he goes on to show us, starting in chapter 3, verse 21. He says that, There is a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. And this is what we mean when we talk about imputed righteousness. That Jesus, having lived a perfectly righteous life, took our sin upon him when he died, and he paid for our sin. Our sin was imputed to him. And in exchange, Jesus' Jesus' perfection... His righteousness was placed on us. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is talking about when it says, For, for our sake He, that is, that is God, for our sake He made Him, Jesus, to be sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. We are declared righteous in God's eyes because Jesus' righteousness is ours. By saving faith, we are brought into this relationship that I spoke about earlier. God is our God, and we are His people. Now, if we look at this beatitude through the lens of imputed righteousness, we might decide that this verse only means... Hunger and thirst for Jesus to be your righteousness. You are not righteous on your own, so recognize that you need Jesus to clothe you with his righteousness. Now, those are all true and good things, and 
And if you haven't trusted Jesus before to be your righteousness before God so that you can be in a right relationship with him, you must. But this passage, Matthew 5, verse 6, is, is not talking about righteousness in this way. I already mentioned that the Sermon on the Mount is directed towards Jesus' followers. Well, this entire sermon presupposes faith in Christ. All of this stuff that Paul talks about when he talks about righteousness, about us being under sin, but having Christ as our righteousness through faith in him, all of this is just the starting point for the person to whom Matthew 5 is addressed. So when we read about hungering and thirsting for righteousness here, it is not something that we cannot attain because no one is righteous. In, instead, this verse promises us that we can actually grow in righteousness. If, if Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied, he is saying that they shall be satisfied by attaining greater righteousness. We don't do this on our own. Christ, as our righteousness, works his righteousness in us. Our desires, our thoughts, our actions begin to look more like his. But even though he works this in us, we don't just sit by and let this happen to us. We live life and actively seek to grow in holiness while we depend on Christ to work holiness in us. This is what we refer to as the process of sanctification, which, as my youth pastor said growing up, is 100% God and 100% you. This righteousness doesn't ever become the basis of our salvation. Instead, it proves that our faith is a real faith. The only one who truly, the one who truly believes in Christ is the one who grows more and more like Christ in true righteousness the longer he lives, he or she lives. So what does this righteousness then actually look like? Well, we can find out by actually looking at the first two chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, verses, chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, we see that Jesus equates righteousness to conformity to the law, as I mentioned earlier. He says that whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven while those who, he who does them and teaches other to do them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But this is, once again, not just outward conformity. And he follows this verse up in, in 5 verse 20 by saying that his disciples need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the, of the scribes and Pharisees, people who dedicated their lives to obeying, keeping the law. So Jesus says, keep the law, but not like the Pharisees keep the law. And in the rest of chapter 5, he gives us six examples of how obeying the law is different for us. And the central theme is that your heart needs to keep the law as well as your hands. You may not murder anybody, but an angry heart is just as sinful. You may not commit adultery, but a lustful heart is equally damning. 
You might love those who are easy to love, but do you show God's love to your enemies or even those who just irritate you? Righteousness depends on obeying, obeying the law, not just with your hands, but with your head, heart, and hands. And then in chapter 6, Jesus shows us what righteousness looks like in our religious duties, and he draws our attention to our relationship with God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Chapter 6, verse 1. And instead, he says, give in secret, pray in secret, and fast in order to be seen by your Father, who is in secret. So why do these things? Only because you long for God to be pleased with them, because His joy is what matters to you. Do you live your religious life for the joy of God, or do you want to look good around others? When you give money, when you pray, when you fast, when you read your Bible, what does your heart long for? Is your first priority the position of your camera for social media, or is your first priority the position of your heart before God? Don't, don't worry about whether or not your devotion to God looks weird to others. If anything, worry that you don't look weird enough because true righteousness really looks weird. Holiness actually means to be set apart. Holiness means to be different. Richard Baxter once said, desire a thousand times more to be godly than to seem so. And I would add to that, even if you look a thousand times weirder. You see, righteousness as Jesus lays it out in the Sermon on the Mount, highlights those two aspects that I spoke of as we defined righteousness. Righteousness is not only about outward actions, but it's about the inward state of your heart. And righteousness depends ultimately on your relationship with God as you live your life. Perfect conformity to the law, mind, and will of God. That is the righteousness this beatitude calls us to hunger and thirst after, which leads us to our second point. What does hungering and thirsting look like? Well, we can actually also find this from looking at the second half of chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, verses 19 through 21, he asks us essentially, where does your treasure lie? in heaven or on earth. And in verses 25 to 34, he asks, what, what, what do you find yourself worrying about? Essentially, do you, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness or do you hunger and thirst for other things? And then at the end of chapter 6, in verse 33, Jesus puts this beatitude to us again, just in a different format. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first, hunger and thirst, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, and you will be satisfied. Do you believe what this verse says? 
Do you believe that as you seek to be a better citizen of God's kingdom instead of your own, that you will be satisfied? That if his righteousness drives you, then all other things you desire will just be things that are added onto you. They're, they're good gifts from God, but they're nothing compared to knowing him and becoming more like him. Now, you might say, Josh, yes, I, I do believe all of this. I believe that knowing God is the greatest privilege I have as a Christian. I believe the gospel and what you said about Christ being my righteousness and being saved by grace. I believe I should hunger and thirst, but I don't find myself hungering and thirsting. So what do I do? How, how do I hunger and thirst? Well, actually, the first thing that I would say to that is that's, that's actually just what you're doing. You can, you can only hunger and thirst for something if, if you lack something and it bothers you. When you're hungry, your stomach is empty, you lack food, you feel your stomach being empty, it doesn't feel good, and it bothers you. When you're thirsty, you lack water, your throat feels dry, and it bothers you, and you seek out water. So if you feel the lack of desire for growth, and it bothers you, that itself is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. God has actually given you this awareness that you are not what you want to be. Paul says in Romans 6 that before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. But now, as Christians, we are slaves to righteousness. We forsake sin as our master now, and when righteousness calls, we obey its call, even if we are slow to come. And Paul says that presenting our members as slaves to righteousness by obeying its call, this leads to our sanctification, our growth and holiness. So the fact that you might feel this need for righteousness is a sign that God is in fact working in you. And he will complete his work in you. He promises that. But, but how, how do we grow in hungering and thirsting? How can we hunger and thirst more? Well, think of it like an appetite. Let's say you're waiting for dinner, supper, whatever you call the meal at the end of your day. How do you, how do you dull your appetite? You dull it by eating snack food throughout the day leading up to, to the meal, and then you uh, don't enjoy the actual meal as much. So what do you do? You, you discipline yourself to not eat snack food throughout the day. And... Spiritual hungering and thirsting is similar. Uh, we need to discipline ourselves, and I think especially we discipline ourselves with how we spend our time. You know, for me, I spend too much time on my phone and on my computer. I don't know if anyone else does. So I need to discipline myself to spend less time on my phone, not just to be more productive in general, but so when I have time on my hands or when I'm walking somewhere, I don't just pull out my phone and stare at it. Instead, maybe I pray or, or sing praise to God. Or if you want to be really sneaky, you can read the Bible on your phone. Or if phones and computers aren't what takes up your extra time, well, then think about what does. 
and whether you might use that time better by spending it with God. And beyond that, we, we can schedule time with God in His Word and in prayer. We can schedule that time into our lives. Really, I think when it comes down to it, it is, it is those two things, the Bible and, and prayer. We can only learn what real righteousness looks like by, by understanding this book better. And if you want to pursue more righteousness in your life, what better way to start than by praying Scripture? And you can pray Scripture starting right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. If you don't feel like you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, just tell God honestly. God I don't long for your righteousness. I am empty and I don't even feel how empty I am. I am so thirsty I don't even feel how much I need water. But God, you say that I can ask and it will be given to me. And so I am asking that you will awaken my heart, make me thirst and hunger for righteousness more. You say that as my Father who is in heaven, you give good things to your children who ask you and so I am asking that you would give me this good thing. You keep pursuing God in his word and in prayer, and you will hunger and thirst for righteousness more. It takes time and it takes discipline, but God promises to grow his children. His purpose from before the beginning of the world was for his children to be conformed to the image of his son. We are slowly being melted and poured into a Jesus-shaped mold. And that is the last thing I want to say about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is seeking to be more like God's Son. We are redeemed in order that we would be made more like Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we are to hunger and thirst for Him. We need to recognize that He is our daily sustenance. We celebrated communion here this morning, and there we are reminded that Jesus is the bread of life. And He nourishes our souls just as much as bread nourishes our bodies. When we drank the juice that was sweet, we are reminded that Jesus shed his blood and purchased us a sweeter, more joy-filled salvation than we could ask for or even imagine. Don't reflect on how you need to believe that these things are true. Reflect on the fact that these things are true now, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you feel it right now. Jesus is our source of strength and health. Jesus is our source of joy. He is our satisfaction. As you hunger and thirst for Christ and His righteousness in you, you will be satisfied with more of Christ and with more righteousness. That is what this beatitude promises. But you will also have what I heard, have heard one man describe as a holy discontent. 
You will grow and you will be more and more satisfied with Christ, but you will also hunger and thirst more and more. You will know Christ better and you will follow him better and you will still want more of him. You will be sated, but you will also be parched. And at times you will feel that you are farther than you are farther from Christ than ever when really your heart is more like his than ever before. You may feel that even now, and that is a sign that God is working in you. Do not be discouraged. Instead, seek Him again. And you will be satisfied with Him again. You will be satisfied with Christ in this life, and yet you will hunger and thirst more. But when you die, you will see Christ, and you will say, I am satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please bless this word that has gone forth. Holy Spirit, make us more righteous as we seek Christ. Please help change our inner motivations and desires as we gaze into the mirror of your word. Thank you for sending Christ to save us. Thank you that his righteousness covers us. And thank you that you do not stop there, but you make us more and more like him. Make this the desire of our hearts, even as we long for the day when we will see Christ face to face and be satisfied with him for all of eternity. All this we ask in the righteous name of Jesus. Amen.